Thank you for listening and subscribing to the Anchor Church podcast. It is our desire at the Anchor to provide a place for you to know God, find freedom, discover your God-given purpose, and ultimately make a difference in the world around you. Each week, the Anchor podcast features Sunday sermon. You can follow along in this podcast episode and read the sermon notes on our website by visiting theanchor.me. Now, let's get into the Word. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, I I thank you for every person that's here. Lord, I don't believe if it's their first time here, if they've been here many, many, many times before, that they're here by accident. God, I believe that there's something that you want to impart to us today, that there's something that you want to say. And so whatever that is, God, we simply open up our hearts. And Lord, as as we've been praying all morning, Lord, I'm just asking God that, that what they hear in the next few minutes wouldn't be just simple information, but Lord, that you would take... God, what they hear, and you'd make it revelation in their hearts and their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, so listen, this morning uh, we're going to dive into actually our seventh part of our current series. Uh, we, we've been talking about through this series how all throughout the Bible God compares and he likens our lives as believers uh, to a building. We actually find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So with that said, most of us know that the, the first and foremost you know, important feature of any building is its foundation, and I'm trying to convey to all of us that the same as it is for a physical building it's for the spiritual building of our spiritual lives that guess what that that our foundation is important in fact i'm hoping that we grab a hold of the understanding that we will never outgrow our biblical foundation amen so basically everything that happens in our lives from god it, it comes from the word yes So because we believe that's true for the past few weeks, we've been focusing on the foundational teachings of Christ. And this comes out of Hebrews chapter 6. I want us to read it again and we'll use it as our launching pad. We'll run in the direction we're going to run today. So it says this in Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It says, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles or the elementary teachings of Christ, let us go on to perfection. Let's move on to maturity. Let's graduate from one grade to the next, not laying again the foundation. Somebody say foundation. Of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptism, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of dead, and of eternal judgment. Now, if you've been with us so far through the first six parts of the series, you know we've already covered repentance. We've talked about faith. We've talked about baptisms. We've talked about laying on of hands. And like I told you uh, two weeks ago, now we are turning our attention to the last two, which is resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And we're, we're kind of condensing those into one topic, and that topic is eternity. And so if I can quickly reiterate a few things, especially for those who are visiting with us today, we, we've talked about how uh, throughout the Bible, God has encouraged us to live with an eternal mindset. In other words, we don't need to make the mistake of living 60, 70, 80, maybe 90 years, and we think that that's all there is to life. We need to understand that this is only, as I said a few weeks ago, this is a dressing room for eternity, right? And so I think it's just really important for us to know that uh, the Bible is really clear that when we die, every single person, Christian, non-Christian, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat. That's why we need to live for eternity. Amen? So, in fact, Jesus went so far, he told us how that that event on that day was going to unfold. He said this in Matthew chapter 25. 
He said, but when the Son of Man, talking about himself, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, it says, then he will sit upon his throne or his glorious throne. Now, what's he talking about there? He's saying that there's going to come a day, we've read it in 1 Thessalonians, we've read it in Corinthians, where the trumpet's going to blow. When the trumpet blows, he's going to descend from heaven with a shout. And at that moment, we know those who are dead in Christ, they're going to basically come up out of the ground, the rapture, they're going to be caught up in the air. And then those who are alive are going to meet them there. And once that happens, happens we know that he will take a seat on his throne and from that spot he will begin to judge that's where he's talking about the glorious throne so it says this in verse 32 it says all the nations that means ethnos or ethnic groups will be gathered in his presence and he will separate somebody say separate Separate. so separate the people as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats that he will place the sheep we know that biblically that represents the believers at his right hand and the goats that represents the unbelievers at his left And then it says in verse 34, it says, Then the king will say to those on his right, the Christians, the believers, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. How many of y'all know that's really good news? So fast forward a few verses, verse 41. Jesus turns his attention from the believers to now those on his left as the unbelievers. And he says this, Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire. So fast forward again to verse 46. Jesus ends the story by obviously revealing the final destination in both groups. He says it's in day. Talking about the goats and unbelievers will go away into eternal punishment. That's hell. And the righteous, the sheep or the believers, will go into eternal life. That's heaven. Okay? So, all right. How many of you guys know that that's pretty weighty? <laughs> right? Like, like that, that's a heavy portion of Scripture, Right? And so what I want to do for the next few minutes, and just again, I want, to, I want to break that down to show you kind of what's going to happen, okay? So according to what we just read, once again, after we die, so understand that this is a, an inescapable moment. This is going to happen to every single person in the room, right? That we're going to stand in front of Jesus. Now, at that point, we're not going to stand in front of Jesus, you know, with our family, with our friends. We're not going to stand in front of our enemies. We're not even going to stand in front of the devil. We're going to stand in front of Jesus Christ himself, and he's going to judge us. Now, once again, I realize that when, uh, when a lot of us, depending on our church background, we hear the word judge uh, or judgment, that that can stir up a lot of emotions in us. If you've been in a really like hellfire and brimstone kind of church before, then, then you probably view that word through the lens of God being angry or him you know, ready to drop the hammer, ready to get even. Uh, but that isn't necessarily what the word judgment means. We know that the word judgment in the Greek language means, once again, not hellfire and brimstone, but it simply means that God will make a decision resulting from an investigation. That God's going to make a decision resulting from an investigation. Now, that tells us that once again, on that day, we stand before him. He's going to take a thorough look at our lives, right? And and based on that thorough look of our lives, he's going to make a decision on where we spend eternity, right? And so the, the first, if you will, lack of a better word, the first phase of this investigation is he is going to look at our lives and he's going to determine it by what we did with the gospel, Like, did we believe in Jesus' death, burial, resurrection or not? Did we make him the Lord and Savior of our lives or not? Did we surrender? Did we give him ownership of our lives or not? Were we, to quote John 3, 3, were we born again, right? So, So once that has been determined, according to what we just read in Matthew 25, we will be divided into two groups. 
And the reason we're going to be divided in two groups is because those two groups are judged. The investigation is going to be different for those two groups. Now, to explain what I mean by this, let's talk about the believers for a second. Okay, once again, uh, we know that Jesus called them the sheep. And that's all the believers that are throughout history. And they're going to stand before what the Bible calls the judgment seat of Christ. And at that judgment seat, what's going to happen is, is in that second phase, it's going to be what Paul said in Romans 14, verse 12. It's what's going to happen. He says, yes, each of us, it's me and you, will give a personal account to God. That literally means that we're going to give a factual report of what we did with our lives. Key word here, don't miss it. After what we did with our lives after we came to Jesus. So in other words, everything that we did before Jesus, we know it's covered by the blood. Amen? But, but now what do we do after literally every action, every word, every motive, every secret thought, every intention of our hearts? Uh, all, all that's going to be investigated. And it really boils down to one word, and that word is obedience. Did we obey the word of God? Did we obey the voice of God? Did we obey the nudgings of the Holy Spirit or not? That's what he's going to be investigating that moment and now determines what he finds that investigation. Once again, it's not punishment that we received, but it gives the degree or the measure of our eternal rewards. If you know that's true, say, oh yeah. So let me, let me show you a verse if that thought is new to you. We're not going to put this on the screen. I didn't give it to our team. Um, this comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul talking, he simply says this, verse 10. It says, according to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another built on it. It says, but let each one take heed on how he builds on In other words, you're saved, great. Now where are you going with your life, right? And it says, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation, your salvation, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, it says, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Now, we all realize that, you know, especially as Mainers, we got fireplaces and wood stoves and all that stuff. We know what happens with wood, hay, and straw. You put it in fire and it's, it burns up, right? It disappears. It's gone, right? Ashes remain. But we understand that if you take gold or silver or precious rubies, you put it in the fire, it actually purifies it and make it better than what it was before, right? And, and so what he's saying is, is we have this chance that here's the, the foundation. Salvation has been laid. What we do with our lives, that wood, hay, and straw represent it's basically things that have zero eternal value in our lives, that we're chasing, pursuing things that don't matter, where the gold, silver, and precious stones, that resembles things that are of the Father's business and do have eternal value and do matter. At that point, we stand before him, the fire's going to come, and all that stuff that doesn't matter is burned up. What we're left with is what was really of eternal value. And then it goes on to say this, talking about the rewards piece. It says, if anyone's work which he has built on the foundation... Of it endures, he will receive a reward. That's what we have for eternity, whatever makes it through the fire. Y'all with me? So Paul actually said this, kind of speaking, I believe, at that moment. He said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 8, he says, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but to all who have loved his appearing. That's us. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. So, so that's the group to the right. Uh, let's focus on the group to the left. Jesus calls this group the goats. He says that they represent all the unbelievers throughout history. And where we stood before the judgment seat of Christ, they'll stand before the great white throne of judgment for the second phase 
of their investigation, okay? I want us to understand really one thing here. It's why I'm going back through all this again. To understand that when you and I stand before Jesus, if we're right with God in the room, we're standing before him as people who have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We've been made righteous because of the sacrifice that he paid for the punishment of our sins, right? So, so he's already paid the price. And because he's paid the price, we believe in that sacrificial death. We believe in that substitutionary atonement. You and I have been declared not guilty. We've been made clean. We have the grace of God in our lives. We've experienced the mercy of God. That's why we get to go to heaven. But when it comes to this group, to understand they haven't experienced any of that. And, and I know this is sobering and it's hard to hear, but, but the reality is, is, is the sacrifice has been made for them. They haven't received it. But the problem is, is that, guess what? Their, their sin that they did, that they committed in this flesh, still has to pay the price. Jesus paid the price for us, but the price wasn't paid for them because they didn't receive what Jesus did, which means that now for all of eternity in hell, they have to endure the punishment upon their lives. Am I making sense? So we see a picture of this in Revelation 20 to kind, of, to kind of lay it out for you here. It says, and I saw a great white throne. So we know when it says great white throne, we're not talking here. We're talking here. It says, and the one sitting on it, it says, I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were open, including the book of life. It says, and the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And all were judged according to their deeds. Notice they're not judged through the righteousness of Jesus according to their deeds. And so they got to give an account to their actions. Once again, their words, their motives, their secret thoughts, even the intentions of their heart. And then it says this, and anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So just as there was an outcome of the investigation here that determined what the eternity would look like, right? For us, it was a reward. For over here, it determines the degree or the measure of the eternal punishment, once again, which will be unfolded all throughout eternity in hell, right? So, so with that said, let me give you two quick thoughts, okay? The first one is this, is that I'm hoping that today in this room that it will be solidified in our hearts that hell is real, okay? It's a real place where real people will spend a real eternity. Like, that's real, Okay, and, and so hell is not some, you know, as I've heard people describe, some figure to play, some state of mind, some circumstance that someone's going through. It's not a place where everybody goes and gets drunk and have a party. Okay, like it, it's real and it's not a good place. Okay, it's what Jesus came to save us from this, right? So the second thing I want to see is that it's really important for us to realize that Jesus discussed hell quite a bit. In fact, he talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. And the reason is because he came to reveal heaven. Okay? He revealed the kingdom. Thus, he had to talk about hell trying to show, look, guys, there is punishment here. Okay? Which should tell us that it isn't, as, as a lot of people would teach today, a lack of compassion or a lack of love to warn people about the dangers of hell. Okay? In fact, I believe the Bible teaches the opposite of truth, that, that it is love and action to warn people. Right? Like, remember, you and I have been called, according to Jude 23, to snatch people from the fires of hell. Right? So if I can give you, give you an example of what I'm hoping that will maybe shake us and wake us up a little bit if we need to be. This morning while I was in prayer, I felt like the Lord reminded me of something that I read. Man, I don't know, probably when I was, I think I was 20 years old the first time I read this. And so, anyways, this comes from Leonard Ravenhill's book, Why Revival Terries. If you never listen to Leonard Ravenhill, I'd encourage you to do so. But he said this. This is a true story. He said, Charlie Peace 
was a criminal. Laws of God or man curbed him not. In other words, this guy was just bent on rebellion and doing whatever he wanted to do. And it says, finally the law called up with him and he was condemned to death. On the fatal morning in the Armory Jail, Leeds, England, he was taken on the death walk. So in other words, this guy was going to be killed for whatever his crime was, okay? And then it says, before him went the prison chaplain, routinely and sleepily reading some Bible verses. In other words, you're about to die, so let me go through some Bible verses with you, right? And then it says, the criminal touched the preacher and asked what he was reading. The consolations of religion was the reply. Charlie Peace was shocked at the way he professionally read about hell. Could a man be so unmoved under the very shadow of the scalpel as to lead a fellow human there and yet dry-eyed, read of a pit that has no bottom into which one uh, this fellow must fall? Could this preacher believe the words that there is an eternal fire that never consumes its victims and yet slide over the phrase without a tremor? Is a man human at all who can say with no tears, you will be eternally dying and yet never know the relief that death brings? All this was too much for Charlie Peace, so he preached. And then says, listen to his on the eve of hell sermon. He says, sir, addressing the preacher, if I believed what you and the church of God say that you believe, even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it if need be on hands and knees and think it worthwhile living just to save one soul from an eternal hell like that. That's some perspective, yeah? I think what blows my mind about the story is, is here's a guy that's probably like, man, why hasn't anybody ever told me that? See, and that's why we're talking about what we're talking about today. This isn't to, you know, what, what we're going to go into is really is the doctrine of hell. But, but it's not hellfire and brimstone. It's not to make people, you know, mad. It's not to scare people into a decision. It's none of that. It's, it's, if anything, there should be a thing from a heart that says, Jesus, thank you for saving me. Right, and now there's a response of a responsibility for us to to make it known. Amen. Like that guy right there, wish somebody would have told him. So, what I want to do is, if you're taking notes, um, I want to quickly give you ten characteristics of hell. I'm going to breeze through these pretty fast. Ten characteristics of hell. If you're taking notes, write them down. The Bible describes hell as this: number one, as a place of fire. We we just read it. Revelation 20 verse 15 says, that "If anyone's name was not found recorded in the book of life, he was hurled into the lake of fire." Number two, the Bible describes hell as a bottomless pit. Revelation 20 verse one says, "Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit." Number three, hell is an endless place. Second Thessalonians chapter one verse nine says this: says these people will pay the penalty and endure the punishment of everlasting destruction. Understand those words: everlasting destruction. Says banishment from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Sobering. Listen, years ago I had the opportunity with Tommy's dad to go to the late Leonard Ravenhill, the guy that wrote that, to his house. And uh, basically I got invited to come and help rearrange the Leonard Ravenhill's library. He had already passed away. His son was living there at the time. But, but I remember while we were rearranging books, uh, you know, there's Leonard Ravenhill, one of my heroes in the faith. There's his desk. And where he would have sat, where he would have wrote books like this, where he would have prayed, he prayed about six hours a day. And uh, basically if you, if you look up, there was a sign that was on the beam that went across the room, and then there was another sign in the room. So there was two signs in the room, just paper, Little, little easy, simple signs, nothing fancy about them. One simply said this, eternity. And the other one, the one that was on the beam, said this. It said, no exits in hell. 
I believe that he wanted to keep it before him to remember as he wrote and as he prayed that hell's got no exit, meaning that, that guess what, it was, it's final. When someone goes there, it's a final thing, right? Like, like we got to understand that no one goes to hell temporarily, uh, you know, until they've somehow, you know, learned their lesson, get their act together. You know, it's quite the contrary, right? So in other words, just as you and I, if we're right with God, we're going to go to heaven for eternity, right? In the same way, they're going to spend their eternity there as well. Like that's a real thing, right? So saying this, I know this isn't uh, culturally accepted. It's not even popular. It doesn't fit the grace message. Like I get all that, right? Like people don't like to talk about this in church, but I really don't care what society says. (laughs) And and the reason is, is because you and I as believers, we got to realize what's at stake here. Right? Like, once again, no one escapes. It's eternal judgment. Like, this is serious. Right? This isn't like your kid acts up and you send them to the room for an hour until they, you know, fix their attitude and then you let them back out. <laughs> right? All right, so let's talk about real quick. The last six is about what, what people experience while they're in hell. Once again, according to the Bible. Number four, hell's a place of consciousness. And what I mean by that is, is uh, people aren't some, like, uh, you know, some comatose zombies. They're not out of it. When someone goes to hell, they're fully awake, fully aware of their surroundings. In fact, they are engaged with everything that's happening around them and to them. In fact, if you go read and you listen to people's testimonies of people who have died and went to hell and by the mercy of God, God rescued them out of it to wake them up. Or as a Christian and God gave them a vision of hell, you know, they'll say again and again and again that, they, that God allowed them to feel a little bit of what the people felt there. They'll talk about smelling sulfur. They'll talk about hearing the screams of people. And they'll talk about how basically all of their senses were fully aware of what was going on. Right? The fifth thing is this. is For those people there, it's a place of complete loneliness. Jesus said this in Matthew eight twelve. It says they'll be cast into outer darkness. And I believe that when he talked about outer darkness, he's saying that they'll be completely separated from everyone and everything. That's not a place, once again, where people go party together. In fact, a lot of theologians describe that outer darkness, meaning that there's a wall of separation that surrounds individuals that makes them alone and they're isolated, not only from God, but they're isolated from all other forms and expressions of life. The sixth one is this, as they say, it's a place of memories, what the Bible says. In fact, Jesus made this really unique statement. You can find it in Isaiah 66. In fact, let me say this. I haven't said this all day. You know, a lot of times when, when I pray and go on, Jesus, am I, am I saying the right thing today? Am I doing the right thing today? Is this, you, you know, sometimes what I'll do is I'll be praying and I'll see, I'll see a, a book of the Bible in a chapter. And it'll be that quick. Right? And I'll go read it. And this morning I had one of those moments. And I went and I read Isaiah 66, and it talks about all this in Isaiah 66. I'm like, okay, God, okay, then we're on the right track. This is good, okay? So open your heart up to it. I know it's not flashy, but Jesus clearly wants us to hear it, okay? So, So this is what it says in Isaiah 66, and Jesus makes the comment three times in Mark 9. He says this, once again, talking about memories. It says this strange verse, where their worm does not die and the fire never goes out. The word worm there in the Greek language simply means maggot. So some theologians teach that there's a literal maggot that's eating away at people's flesh all through eternity. But then there's other theologians, and I would probably lean more in this direction, that say that this is more about memories and it's more of a plaguing effect. And what it means is literally for all of eternity, these people will turn again over and over and over moments of their life where they had the opportunity to receive Jesus but rejected him. 
And so the maggot or the memory there is something that continually will eat away at them forever. Number seven is this, is that for these people, hell is a place of unquenchable desires. Like I'm sure most of us read somewhere along the line what Jesus said in Luke 16. It says, the rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm in anguish in these flames. And we know if you keep reading, Jesus said, look, that abyss between here and there, it's impossible. Nobody can pass it. Right? And so what he's trying to say is that the desperate needs, the human needs of people, even a simple drop of water, man, will never be quenched. That there's no satisfaction for the flesh in hell. Number eight is this, is that hell is a place of torment and pain. I think we can all already see this and get it. But, but Jesus said this in Matthew 22, 13. It says, then the king said to his aides, that's really him saying to his angels, bind his hands and his feet and throw him in the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, if you're anything like me, for years I thought, that's such a weird saying. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. I didn't understand the language that Jesus was using to describe what people were going to experience in hell. And one day I remember studying, and I, and I came up you know, upon this, weeping, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, and simply gnashing of teeth means grinding the teeth. But, but here's where Jesus was speaking from so the people would understand. If you rewind, go all the way back in the, in the uh, basically New Testament days, obviously we know that Jerusalem had walls around it, and those walls were there for two reasons, to protect them from enemies, and secondly, they were there to protect them from wildlife such as lions. So it was there to once again protect people. Well, what would happen was is uh, if, you, if you study it, you find actually at certain gates and stuff, they would take uh, over the wall, they would take all their trash and they would dump it over the wall. And it would kind of become uh, their dump, if you will. Okay? And so in the middle of the night, the darkest hours of the night, you could hear lions roar and, and lions would come and they would basically dig through all that trash and the food that wasn't eaten, they would eat it to survive. So they got the idea, okay, lions are there. And this, is, this blows my mind, that if someone was assumed to be guilty of a crime, what they would do is, is they would try to uh, judge them. But if they couldn't figure out if the person was guilty or innocent, they had this bright idea. They would tie a rope to them in the middle of the night. They would lower them over that wall. This is true. They would lower them over that wall, and they would hang them basically where all that trash was. And if they were alive the next morning, they were deemed to be innocent. And if they were dead, it was, well, they must have been guilty. It was judgment. And so what happened was, though, was in many cases, as you can expect, when they would crank old boy back up, and if he was actually alive, uh, he would be going insane because of the fear, the torment that he felt all night as, as those lions went around him or were growling and all that stuff. And so that they would literally, and this is why Jesus said it, they would literally grind their teeth down out of fear and the agony that they felt. And once again, insanity. And so that's what he was saying is when people go to hell, that's the experience they're going to have. If you're with me, so yeah. Number nine is this, is it's a place of no rest. Revelation 14, 11 says, And the smoke of their torment sends forever and ever, and they have no rest. In other words, there's no relief. Number 10 is hell is a place of utter hopelessness. Now, everything that we've said so far, I would say that's pretty bad. But to me, this has got to be the worst part of hell. Is, is to understand that its inhabitants will know that the torment that they're feeling, literally there's no end to that. Can you imagine that? You know, you and I go through tough spots in life, and we have hope that it's going to get better. Like these people have the knowledge 
that it's not going to get better. It's never going to stop. There's never going to be any peace. If I can just say it even this way so you understand that we read earlier in a few verses where it talks about hell out of Thessalonians. The hell is really the absence of the Spirit of God. Like God's not there. And so if you can for a moment think about all the goodness that God brings in your life. Imagine the joy that you feel, the peace that you feel, right? The acceptance you feel, the belonging you feel, uh, the love you feel, whatever. Just keep going all that, going down the list. And then realize that for these people, they don't ever have a moment of any of that. Because everything, the Bible says, all good things come from above. So all of that is gone, and that's what these people are experiencing. That's frightening, yeah? All right, so let me close with this. That is, if you study theology, that's the doctrine of hell, okay? And once again, I can't, I can't reiterate enough. That's not hellfire and brimstone. That's not me trying to scare people. That's me just going, that's what Jesus said, okay? So let me maybe be clear. Let me take a rabbit trail really quick. We never make a decision for Christ just going, I'm going to avoid that, okay? Uh, th- th- there's no such thing as that. let's get out of hell free, let- this is my fire insurance, this is my, you know, whatever term you want to use. Listen, we get right with God because, like we sang earlier, we're just grateful for what Jesus did for us. And in response, we want to give him our lives. And so I've never met a person that is just trying to avoid hell that makes a good Christian, okay? So we want to just serve God and love God, but we still need to be aware, Okay, because there is a real eternity. And so anyways, let me give you maybe a couple of thoughts because I've learned, you know, 26 years of talking about this. If it, if it is speaking with someone person to person, one-on-one conversation, or if it is preaching in a thing like this, uh, a question that a lot of people ask is they say this, well, how can a loving God send people to a hell like that? Like, that's a really good question, okay? But, but listen, every time somebody asks me that question is an indicator to me that there's a few things about God that they don't understand. And so I want to say a few things today, not from the sense of being sarcastic or salty, just simply, man, like, like if, if you have that thought, then maybe you should consider these three things, okay? And the first one is this, is I think that if we're asking that question, we need to remember who hell was made for originally, Okay, because Jesus said, we've been talking about what Jesus said all day. Jesus said that hell was made for Satan and the demons, not for people. He said that in Matthew 25, verse 41. Okay, so, so from the heart of God, hell was never made for folks. Okay, the second thing is this, is that it tells us that people need to have a greater understanding of the heart of God. And here's what I mean. Like, like we sang, I, I love the worship set we had this morning because it was all about really just being grateful for what Jesus has done for us. We have to remember, like, why did Jesus come in the first place? To seek and save that which was lost. You know, who did he die for? For God so loved the world, right? So listen, did he not say through Peter that he wishes none would perish? Get that, none would perish. In fact, let me give you a verse that I wish that, that could go really deep in our souls so we could understand the love of God more. But here's what he said through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 18, 23. He said, do you think that I like to see wicked people die? Do you think I like to see wicked people die, says the sovereign Lord? And then what's the statement? Of course not. Like, like to think in our head, and I think, you know, once again, there's great tension and how God moves, okay? Like, we can't ever just box him in. I understand he does things that, that whatever, you know, there is judgment, okay? 
But, but to understand that even some of the wickedest people that you'll ever imagine in your lives, those people that we shake our heads at and get frustrated at, that, that Jesus doesn't want them to die in that state. Like I've literally heard in church, I'm, well, I'm glad they died. They got what they deserved. Like that's heartbreaking, right? So let's look at it again. Do you think that I like to see wicked people die, says the sovereign Lord? Of course not. And then he says what he wishes. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. Now understand what Jesus said in John 10.10. 10. It says, for the enemy comes to still kill and destroy. The thief comes to still kill and destroy. But I have come to give life and life more abundantly. That's what Jesus is offering, right? So if I can even say it this way, because so many people, when they, when they say, why would God send, why would a loving God send people there? They're trying to make an indictment against God, right? And, and so, so often I just go, man, your indictment lacks common sense, okay? And here's why I say that. Is there anybody in the room, you can wave your hand at me, that has a friend or a family member that you would like to see get saved? Yeah, probably everyone else, right? So think about it this way. If you've ever had the opportunity to tell them about Jesus and they rejected it, does that mean that you're mean and you're cruel? He's telling us. <laughs> right? And so, listen, he's telling us the truth. So does that mean that he's cruel and he's mean if people don't accept what he did for them already? No. So to make this indictment that God's just this mean God, man, that, that's a lie and it's deception from the devil because it goes everything against what Jesus, what he came for, yeah. right? So, so I think this, man, we have to look and go, has Jesus already done everything that needs to take place so that these people would be rescued from the hell we just talked about? Yes. Okay, absolutely. And so, but once again, it's their choice, which leads us to this. When people say that question, how could a loving God send people to a hell like that? It says that they don't realize how we were created. Like they really don't understand that. And the reason I say it is because we were created with a free will, which means we have freedom of choice. So you and I were designed by God, right, to, to have the ability to walk with God, talk with God, commune with God, have intimacy with God. But we're still free to move in another direction if we want to. Or like for some of us in the room, like we're, we're married. Well, every day the person we're married to is choosing to stay walking with us. Okay? Nobody's making them. They're choosing. And it's the same way with God. Listen, we can choose to walk with him or not walk with him. Right. So at the end of the day, man, if, if people want to go in a different direction, they're free to do so. They're free to respond to him or not. So which tells us that having a free will also comes with personal responsibility. Right? So which means that, that we're not only held accountable for our actions, but we are also responsible for where we spend eternity. So, so I understand that we're saved by grace, but we got to choose to be saved by grace. Right? And so at the end of the day, you know, that line, why does he send people there? He doesn't send people there. We send ourselves there because we choose not to walk with him. Right? All right. So, so let me say this as kind of last thing we'll land it is I, I've had a lot of people say to me when that comes up, well, what about those people in Africa? It's always Africa, by the way. Like, it's always Africa. So two things here, okay? Um, first one is this, is if you have such a burden for Africa, maybe God's called you there. Okay, and I'm not, I'm not saying that to be cute. I'm, I'm really not. But, but if there's a burden that you feel for that country then there's a chance that maybe he's calling you to leave all this behind and go be a missionary over there. Okay? Making sense? 
but the frustrating part for me is when someone doesn't have that burden, they're just using it as an example to throw in the face of God. I want to say to that Christian, it's like, why are you so concerned about Africa and not your neighbors that live two houses down from you? Like, why are you not concerned about where they go, you know, to heaven or hell or not, right? And so I, I just think this, if I can charge you guys in any way, is to remember that Acts 17, 26 says that God has preappointed our times and our boundaries. Y'all have heard me say that verse before. In other words, he, he put us here in Maine for a reason. Like, that Louisiana boy is in Maine because God appointed him to. That Kentucky boy, God's here because God put him here. That lady from Iceland over there, that's all of our staff people. And guess what? God, God put her here because he chose to. The reason this Alabama boy is here because God called me here. Right, And so there's other people in the room that are from different parts of the United States. And there's people that are here that you grew up here. Well, God has all of us here. So we have a responsibility for our region. Just like nobody from Africa is going to come and, and you know, evangelize the people that live in our neighborhood. Guess what? We're not going there. we got to handle our own work. Okay? This is our field to plow. Amen? So instead of getting upset with God, maybe we should do our part. Amen. All right. Here's a few things. I'm like, okay, here's my prayer, and we'll land this plane, okay? Number one is this. My prayer is that, God, that you would give us a burden for souls. And that, secondly, you would teach us how to intercede for the lost. Right? Teach us how to intercede. In other words, that we wouldn't get so caught up in all the time of what's going wrong in our life and what we need in our life become so self-consumed with our world that we forget that there's a world out there dying going to hell. Okay, so that we, our eyes would be open. And the next thing is this, is that we would say, you know what? If I really care about lost people, then God's probably going to give me an opportunity to talk to them. So that means I need to be equipped and ready for when I talk to them that I can actually tell them how to get saved. So that requires us to dig deeper into the word and to find out to go, okay, that's the way of salvation. Am I making sense? All right. So, so the last thing is this, is, is when God opens the door. Notice I didn't say if, I said when. I, I'll say it again because you didn't really hear me. So I didn't say if he opens the door, I said when he opens the door. Because when you pray, he's going to open the door. Okay, And so when he does open the door, that you would have the courage to simply walk through it. So I understand, watch this. So often, this is for somebody because I haven't said this in the last two services. So often when we know we need to tell somebody about Jesus, there's somebody in this room, the prevailing thought that you know when you need to tell somebody about Jesus is you're thinking, well, all these things are still wrong in my life. I have no right to tell them about Jesus. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, brother, brother, that we all got issues we're working through. Yeah. And so if we all waited until everything was squeaky clean, we'd never tell the soul about Jesus. Okay, so, so, so listen, if God opens the door, your life may be a mess, but if you're really in your heart clinging to Jesus and looking to Jesus for help, you got full right to tell somebody, hey man, this is the way I'm running, brother, you need to run this way too. Amen. This is what's helped me and the little bit of help I got, so, so look, he'll help you too if you let him. Okay, so the second thing that I've noticed where people are like, they don't want to talk about Jesus to other people is because they are so scared of rejection. It's the fear of man. And truth is, they fear people more than they fear God. We've got to get over that. Right? 
So Britt Hancock, some of you guys have seen him. I love what Britt says. He says, what, do you, what are you scared about? You, you, you scared you're going to turn them off? What, to hell number two? <laughs> right? Like, there is a heaven and there's a hell. So plain and simple, if you turn them off, man, we, we have to do our part. We plant, we water, the, the rest is up to God. I mean, but I've just learned over the years, if, if I'm listening to God and I'm walking with God and he says, now go tell somebody, typically when I walk through that door, guess what? He meets me there. He's already prepared their hearts. I've made no, because I pray this a lot. God, give me the key sentence to unlock their heart, right? And, and I just know a lot of times that key that gets me in the door isn't what keeps me in the door, but I just know I need to say that and then when I get in there, then God begins to fill my mouth and the rest comes freely. Right? And in the inside, I'm going, Jesus, help me, Jesus, help me, Jesus, help me, Jesus, help me. Right? But it's all smooth and flowing fine there. Right? Go witness. You'll know what I'm saying. Okay. Can you stand on your feet? Thanks for listening to me today. Jesus... As your sons and daughters, we're asking you today, God, what we just said, would you give us a greater burden for the loss? God, would you allow us to see this world through your eyes? And would you allow us to hear with your ears? God, would you let us see beyond our own little world? And would you help us hear beyond our own prayers? God, would you, would you help us hear the desperation of lost people? Would you let us see the desperation of lost people? Would you help us remember what it was like to live life without any hope when we needed Jesus? So God, would you give us a burden? And Lord, I'm asking God that you would teach us how to pray for the lost. Teach us how to intercede. Lord, we recognize in this world that you've given us authority through prayer and nothing shifts, nothing changes without people praying. So Lord, that's what prepares the ground for the word of God, for the seed, the incorruptible seed. So Lord, and lastly, would you give us courage to actually witness, to stand up and say, hey, Jesus is real. Jesus did this for you. God, would you help us to, to not be afraid? God, we live in a society that really doesn't like you. But Lord, I'm asking God that you would help us not to be overwhelmed by what society thinks. And we would just be confident in who you are and who you are in us and who you want to be through us. And Lord, I'm asking God today that, that you would just help us to take that great commission that we understand that we are ambassadors of the King to do what you've called us to do. God, you've anointed us for it. You've equipped us for it. So God, help us to obey. And Lord, lastly, I'm asking God, if there's anybody in this room today that, that isn't right with you. God, I, the goal today hasn't been to scare anybody into some decision. But, but Lord, it's to simply go, hey, here's the reality. You can have two futures. One in heaven. And here's the other one that's full of consequences. But Jesus, we thank you today that you've already paid the price so we can be rescued from hell like we just talked about. So Lord, today, if we don't know you, God, will you just help us to say, Jesus, here's my life. Lord, I'm thank you. I thank you for forgiveness. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for heaven. I thank you for all your goodness. But Lord, help me to live my life in a way that would honor you. 
like to live in true surrender, to live in true submission, to live in true obedience. Lord, will you let there be that divine exchange that only you can make in a man or a woman's heart that says, here's my sin, but oh God, here's my life. God, would you do it? Would you do it in Jesus' name? Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram for encouragement in your walk with God and to receive updates on events happening at The Anchor. Have a great week and God bless.